Hello, this is Noah Gibbs, and this is Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. Uh, I'm here with Andrew Mason of the Remote Ruby podcast and Ruby Blend, also of CodeFund. Uh, Andrew, it's great to be talking to you today. Uh, good morning, where you are. Yeah, good morning, Noah. I'm excited to uh, finally talk to you in person. Yeah, likewise. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you learned to write software. How'd you learn to do what you do? I came from a more traditional background. I think that a lot of people hear about where I was very interested in computers when I was younger. Um, I'm also very young and I've, I've listened to a few of your past episodes. So I think my, my age is significantly um, younger than some of your more recent guests, but I was very interested in computers when I was younger. I remember FTPing um, HT or HTML files up to like a web server that me and my friend were working on when we were younger. And um I I got very big into like different aspects of computing and then I I don't know how I settled on it but I knew that I wanted to be doing computer science from a very young age. So in high school I took some computer science courses. I learned Visual Basic which was awesome and I <laughs> it was a lot of fun to learn and then I also learned Java in high school. And then I went to college and got a bachelor's degree in computer science and um, learned some stuff there, but the majority of the learning there came from kind of learning on my own and also a really uh, good internship that I happened to fall into and um, kind of just spiraled from there. I originally thought I would be doing network security or some type of security, but I was always, uh, I always had a knack for programming. And when I discovered Ruby and Ruby on Rails, I was like, this is what I, what I want to do. So that's how I wound up here. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I love all the old stories where we talk about old protocols like Telnet or FTP, because for so many of those, you know, if it's a, if it's a new listener and they were to say, what is, what, what, what is FTP? And I would say, well, it's like SCP, except it was worse in every way. And so right. don't, don't go back and look for it. Like you're not missing anything. But, uh, <laughs> and in the same way, you know, Telnet. What was, I, I had to explain Telnet to somebody the other day because who's, when's the last time you used Telnet, right? And it's, what is it? Well, it's SSH, but it's worse in every way. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I've used, I've FTP'd files onto a server as probably three years ago. Uh, so sure. it's, you know, not, you can, it's not gone. Oh, it's not gone. You can still find it, but I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever actually implemented FTP? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> it's such a bad protocol. Like, I mean, there are protocols where you look at it and you go, okay, these people have just different sensibilities and different requirements than I do. True, but it's also just a bad protocol. <laughs> like, gotcha. I know a little bit about it. I took a networking course and I learned a little bit about that, but the majority of my knowledge of FTP is um, opening up something like FileZilla or CyberDuck, I believe, are the ones that come to mind. And somehow dropping, not really understanding truly how it works, but dropping files on and kind of understanding that, you know, so I put my files here and it sends them there. And then that's basically where the, the idea stops. Yep. Yeah. Um, FTP was one of those that nearly died as a result of all of us getting uh, firewalled, you know, uh, mm -hmm. basically like cable modems where you've got a firewall built into the, the thing that connects you to the internet. Um, and your, your firewall still has horrifying 
rules to let FTP be even possible again. Quite a lot of them can read your FTP protocol, so it's good that it's not encrypted, because if you did encrypt it, your firewall would keep it from ever working again, um, because it has to read and see that you're sent setting up a connection where the other side is told what port to connect to you on. Um, it's, it's just, it's a bad idea, you know, it's... <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, it's... Uh, I love talking about a few old tools that were really good, but I also, because, you know, everybody reminisces about the things you miss, about the things where the modern, oh, the modern world's not nearly as good as what we had. But it's, it's weird to me how many old people reminisce about all the old stuff as though it was good when most of it was terrible. Uh, so I like to throw a little of that into the mix too, just so people know, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I've surrounded myself with people who are much older than me. So I, I hear a lot of it, but I'm not exposed to most of it just because of how young I am. So. Well, and there's, so, there's no reason to, you know, when I, when I say something like, oh, yeah, this is awful, it's, I mean, I suppose you could go look at it, you know, it could, could be sort of like, oh, oh this stinks, smell this, um, but no, I just mean it's awful and you shouldn't bother. Uh, <laughs> no, I've been, I've been reminiscing more lately, I'm actually working on, on MUD code, of all things, you know, you, you remember MUDs? I've never heard the term MUD. Oh, wow, well, you, you're one of today's lucky 10,000. Um, I'm ready. Once upon a time when there was really no computing power to be had anywhere worldwide, um, long before things like EverQuest or Ultima Online, which borrowed liberally from MUDs, um, what you had was like that with no graphics. I don't mean bad graphics. I don't mean Apple II, Commodore 64 style graphics. I mean no graphics. It was text. There was a text description of the room, and it would tell you what was there, and you could tell it, fight monster, if you wanted to fight the monster by typing the words and hitting return. It was like Zork the MMO. Okay, I now that you've said it, I have like a vague idea of what you're talking about. I have never actually seen or used it, but I know uh, that it exists. Reasonable. Um, yeah, they're still out there. It turns out uh, things on the internet never really die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the good and the bad part of it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, occasionally something dies, but it definitely isn't, isn't particularly biased toward the good stuff, saying the good stuff is reinvented, but it doesn't live. It's just reinvented. Right. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So, sorry, you, uh, you were talking about your relatively traditional background. I'll say we, I've gotten a, a, a great range lately. Uh, you, you've only been able to hear a few episodes because I'm doing that thing where I record a whole lot of people and then I can only edit about one a week to get the, uh, the episode right. out. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot kind of in the hopper. Um, but uh, you had, as you said, a fairly traditional background. That makes sense. I had one that was similar just much earlier. Um, what would you say, given that you talk to a lot of people with the less traditional backgrounds now, what would you say about having had that traditional background? How has it served you? I, I would have said before I started really thinking, like in preparation for this podcast, I went through and I still have all my old college schoolwork because I graduated in 2018, which is only oh. two years ago. Yeah. So very recent graduate. Um, although I've, I've had a large variety of experiences since then, it seems it, it's hard to comprehend that it's only been two years, but uh, I, I had looked back on my college time with a very cynical outlook, honestly, and sure. kind of much like Jason Sweat when your very first episode, I mm -hmm. had a very similar experience to Jason where I came into college and I had this idea that they were going to teach me um, everything I needed to know to have a career because that's what I had kind of been taught. Um, at some point in high school, 
my I was a big swimmer. I went to uh, states for swimming, and I was I was really into that. And my swim coach was a um, he was he worked in network security, and he went to a two year vocational school and graduated. And by the time he was twenty one, he owned his own house, and he was doing very well for himself. So I had this idea that I wanted to not go to a four year university because I didn't want to learn all the stuff that comes along with that like all the the english and the all the extra math and you know art and yada yada so i i had this idea that i wanted to do that unfortunately but also very fortunately i was very privileged to have a um a very sizable scholarship um so it it made no sense for me not to go to a four-year university my parents had always had their hearts set on me going to a four-year so i did um and i will say that I, and I said, I, I look back on it with a very cynical outlook and I, I still kind of do, but I've realized um, as I've matured that what I got out of college wasn't necessarily what I thought I was going to get out of it. I got a lot out of it, but it wasn't in the area that I wanted. And had I known that, I don't know, I, I don't know if I would have repeated the experience. Like looking back, would I still go to a four-year university? The answer is definitely not. Okay. So you say you, uh, you didn't get what you expected to get out of it. Tell me a little more about what you expected to get out of it. Yeah, I expected them to basically be a boot camp almost. Um, I mean, I knew I was going to get, you know, your, you know, your fringe, um, you know, your, your English and your history and your art. And it's funny because I, I loved history. I always, I still do, but I tested out of all history. So mm. I never actually was allowed to take any history, which didn't really make much sense to me, but. I uh, I thought they were going to teach me what I needed to learn to get a job, and the answer is simply that if you take if you get a computer science degree, you will not do that because it's a lot of theory, a lot of math, um, a lot of non tangible ideas that you know in the broad terms relate maybe to what you might be doing day to day as a programmer, but most of it does not. Like I I was looking back through my work. And I came across a, a course that I apparently took and have absolutely zero recollection of. And it was all about formal languages and grammars and, you know, finite automata and oh. uh, TSP. And that sounds like a great course. Yeah, I apparently knew how to um, take, you know, these uh, equations and turn them into state machine diagrams. And I have, I just have zero recollection of that. And which is funny because of all the courses I was looking through, I was like, this is the one that seems like it might have been the most helpful. I'm like, yeah. and yet I don't remember it. Um, I'm trying to figure out if I, if I heard you right. You, so you mentioned uh, state machines, formal automata, uh, parsing, TSP, did you say? Yeah, I had a... Um, that was I, that was kind of worked into this course, but also a major part. I took a very large algorithm course. Yeah. No, I'm just not recognizing it there. Okay, oh, traveling salesman problem. Oh, oh, okay, got it. Yep, got sorry. It. Okay, uh, no, no, no trouble. Um, I, I should have recognized it, or well, I, actually, I almost never talk about it. But yeah, uh, I, 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 I well, no one does. So <laughs> outside of like the theory and uh, I, sh- I, I definitely should have defined it. But yeah, the traveling salesman problem, which is essentially um, a a question that is, or a problem that is often posed and um, different algorithms are used to solve it of if you have, I'm not, I'm not going to say this the perfect way, but if you have um, a bunch of points on a graph, what is the fastest way to get um, from point A to point Z? 
Yeah, it's usually posed as if you've got a whole bunch of places and you know you want to go through all of them exactly once each. What's the shortest route that goes through all of them exactly once each? Right. Um, I can't remember if it's like a complete cycle where you have to return to the original point or if you can start at any point and finish at any point. Uh, it's one of those I think, two. I think as long as... I don't think you have to go back to the beginning. I think okay. it's... Um, that because the, the the reason it's kind of called the traveling salesman problem is, to my understanding, there used to be a lot of literally traveling salesmen where you may be a vacuum salesman and you would go literally door to door um, selling vacuums. Yeah. And that's kind of like a, a far out idea to us now. But back then, that was, you know, how yeah. you had to sell things. Yeah. And that was where the problem originated. Yeah, no, they absolutely there absolutely were. And they didn't do anything like that to figure out where to go. Um, which makes a lot of sense because if you're trying to make money, like hitting each point exactly once is kind of kind of dubious, right? Right. You should hit the places where people uh, buy a lot of vacuums more often if you're selling vacuums. Right. <laughs> that, no, that makes sense. Um, so here, I'll ask you about this, and it may or may not, uh, I, I may or may not be asking you anything useful, but that's fine. I, that's, that's sort of me in a nutshell. Um, <clears throat> So I know with the traveling salesman problem, it's a great example of an NP-complete problem. That is to say, there is not only no known solution that is better than exponential time, there is believed to exist no solution that's better than exponential time. And a whole bunch of stuff we think we know all collapses horribly if it turns out there's a, there's a less than exponential time solution to it. Um, it's also, like many NP-complete problems, one where there's uh, a bunch of approximations to it that almost always give you basically the right answer that are really straightforward and, and can be done in a reasonable amount of time, etc. Um, that is to say, the really hard part of it is only that we've posed a problem much harder than we think we've posed. Now, I'm told that there's a variation on the traveling salesman problem where everything is the same except all of your distances are guaranteed to be integers. Um, they could be big integers, but they're all, you know, integers. Um, the algorithm, I believe, is called Concord, and apparently it can do significantly better than that if all your, your distances are integer. Did you learn anything about that or about any other sort of, of the, of the relatively fast heuristic algorithms, you know, approximations to traveling salesmen? I have not heard of that specifically. I do know a lot of heuristic, greedy, brute force algorithms, um, when I say I know them, like if you said the name, I would know them. I wrote uh, several of them down, but okay. when I think, if I were to think in a daily, you know, problem like, oh, I need an algorithm for this, I'm not going to be able to think about, oh, this will be a great use case for a simulated annealing or something like that. That makes sense. No, I've not heard specifically of Concord. The TSP was the teacher that I had for uh, my algorithms course was very, very big into TSP. That makes sense. I was just curious. At one point, I decided, oh, you know, I'd heard about these interesting approximations. I should, I should go get, you know, find the white papers or whatever and study them. And uh, this was one of those few cases where I went, I'm going to go out and find the white papers. And like, no, I, I came up pretty much empty on it. It happens occasionally, but, but mostly, you know, we do computer science by and large. Even those things where you can't just download the whole white paper, it's usually, uh, it's usually not too far out of your way. Or at least you can find a reference to it. You know, you can find out what you're looking for, even if you'd have to pay for a copy. Okay. Right. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can I, I can see why that sounds like a really interesting class. I'm sorry you've managed to forget it completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It uh, it definitely like in hindsight, there were aspects of some of the courses I took that may have been useful, and I would just say that by and large they were not. Um, and I also suffered from, um, you know, my own arrogance. Definitely, um, I. Uh, I had a I had a bad teacher, and 
unfortunately, this teacher was not a teacher I had just once or twice. Um, they, I had him four or five times, and it was all in the Ooh. very base le- level of courses. That's hard. Yeah, and I'm I'm not saying just bad in the sense of like, oh, I was like not trying to learn. I'm talking like as in the exam day came and literally no one knew how to do anything because he hadn't taught us anything. So he would literally like during the exams, just read us out the answers. Wow. Yeah. It was like disturbingly bad. That's disturbingly bad. And that, yeah, that sucks especially much for the early classes because you know, the people who aren't sure if they want to do it yet, that's what they're, that's what they're getting as the introduction to all this. That's really ugly. And I, I do remember losing a lot of people um, that uh, I started off with in my 131 course, which was a Python course. And because I already knew how to program, I did very well in that course. And I was often um, the one that the teacher, because as soon as I finished my work, I was like, all right, can I leave now? And the teacher was often getting me to go around and help debug other students, which yep. um, at the time I was very bitter about. And now I'm very um, thankful for because it's- it definitely helped increase the uh, my debugging ability, empathy, communication, and um, looking at someone else's code and trying to decipher it. But in the in the moment where I was a college student and I didn't want to be sitting in class, you know, it wasn't uh, my favorite thing. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's easy to be impressive as somebody who already knows stuff in a class that's uh, that's really mm-hmm. bad. And I, I'm I'm glad you were able to do the teaching thing. But yeah, we um, I, I had a computer networks class that was a little like that. Uh, I think I actually attended class three and a half times, like, mm-hmm. uh, and one of them was the midterm, and one of them was the final. Um, but a lot of it was, yeah, it's when they're just teaching from the book. It was a perfectly good book, but that was fine. I stayed home and read the book. Uh, but I was really popular at the, uh, the um, well, I'm completely forgetting the name of the little meetings afterwards where you get together with the TAs instead of the, the professor, and, uh, and you actually do the, you know, do the work together and ask questions about it. Um, but yeah, it was because nobody had a clue what they were doing, and it turned out I'd done a bunch of computer networking stuff before. And so there yeah, were. I got a lot out of my uh, computer networking courses. That is, I of all the courses, like I took a massive amount of computer science courses, and out of all of them, I remember a lot from that one, just because it was yeah. kind of so far. It it took it took away the theoretical, and yeah. suddenly we're talking about real things that we can see in nature. And I've always had. I've always had very, like, I always struggled with um, trying to understand, um, you know, like, this is theory. How do we, and they, they don't teach you, like, this is how it gets actually applied, which, you know, in hindsight would have been very helpful. Um, yeah. But I, I struggled a lot with, you know, why are we doing this? I'm never going to need this. And then yep. coupled with my own arrogance, and then I soon realized that I actually had ADHD, which um, kind of changed, like, the later years of my college dramatically. Um, yep. But it, uh, yeah, it, it was a frustrating experience. And like, uh, like Jason, it sounds like maybe you, at some point I just stopped, I stopped going to class because I, um, I was like, the teacher teaches out of the book or the teacher is not going to help me anyway. I can learn all this on my own um, and then just come in and ace the exams. And the teachers didn't really like me for that, but that was what I did. And I, even though I did not, my, my attendance was very, very low. Um, for many classes that I went to, I I came out with a surprisingly good GPA, and I owe that all to the failed uh, education system. Fair enough. I, I've had a few classes that I just you know stopped going to. Uh, at least one of which I failed out because I just stopped stopped going. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, no, most, mostly I mostly I kept going. I don't know. I was I was certainly roundly sick of college by the time I was done with college, but mm-hmm. that was okay. You know, that's that, good timing, right? Like if I'm sick right. to, to the point where I'm just going to stop, like right after I graduate is a great time for that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. And I I agree that computer networking is a really good topic. It's just you know it's. There's how good the topic is, and there's how good the teaching is, and it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't a good class, even though it's a great subject, and the Tannenbaum book is a great book. Um, I feel like there's probably a really interesting story behind TCP/IP because uh, if you look at the protocol, I don't know, did you get in, get into that much? In uh... yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, it's just looking at what was standard software and how it worked and how we did stuff like flow control, and then looking at TCP/IP. It reads like one of those science fiction novels where people bring an automatic weapon back to the Civil War. Like it reads like like people dropped alien technology there. But no one did anything like this. It was not in the slightest clear that there was any reason to do anything like this. Here this, you know, had a series of fixes to problems that proceeded to occur one after the other, year after year after year, and it was, you know, fifteen years later by the time TCPIP was having serious troubles. Why I mean this is perfect. But that's not how tech works. Tech is not perfect. How how did they do this? It seems right. like there must be a story, but I can't find the story anywhere. It was just this is the bizarre, in a way that you look at it and you go, oh look at that. That's ridiculously overcomplicated. No, no, it looks ridiculously overcomplicated because it's fixing the right four things one after the other. <laughs> yeah, it's a it is a a beautiful solution, and in a time where there weren't many. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. Exactly. Most of the good solutions of the time, well, I mean, they were they were solutions of the time, right? It's uh, again, if you look at literal automatic rifles, you find out that that there was, you know, the the, the rifles that you would pack manually by pouring powder in, and um, and there were a series of things that eventually turned into this thing, which if you dropped it in, would look like science fiction. And in the same way, you can imagine a series of evolutionary steps that results in TCP/IP. There's just no documentation they ever happened. It's it's again. It's like the you know the 15 years later solution just dropped into their laps for no reason. Right. Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah, I I agree. There's a lot of interesting stuff to to networks. Like the Tannenbaum book's great. It's a it's a really good book. Um, but yeah, how you how you learn it's different from that. Cool. Um, so all right, you mentioned that you sort of expected it to be more like boot camp. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'll ask. Because it's it's sort of the standard next step most people give. Have you already read uh, Coder to Developer by Mike Gunderloy or The Pragmatic Programmer by I think Dave Thomas? I have not read them. Um, I I know about them. Um, okay. At some point, I, I used to be a massive reader, and then my <clears throat> my love for reading was killed by the public school system um, because sure. suddenly I was being forced to read books that were mostly terrible. So, and I never really was able to rekindle that love, but I still try. Um, I still get you know, some of the way through a book and then I, uh, I never see it again. It disappears somehow. That makes sense. You don't have children, do you? I find my books walk off, but I have children. No, no, I'm, much, I, I, well, I'm not too young to have kids, but in my mind, I'm much too young. Uh, fair, reasonable. Well, that, that means that's not the prison your books are walking off. So you've, you've got that one figured out. Um, no, that makes that makes sense. Uh, I'll say if you ever do decide to sit down and try it, possibly with a borrowed copy from somebody else, um, 
Yeah, those are those are old but solid answers to a lot of the kind of boot camp type stuff that didn't. I mean, it's never been taught by universities. I mean, before they were boot camps, there was still the demand for people to learn it, and so you know these these books were one way that happened. Uh, you may also know most of it just you know having a few years of actual professional experience under your right. Book, but it's not bad to read either way. Skim the table of contents, see if you know, see see if you're interested. Cool. Uh, all right. So you talked about how university wasn't what you expected. You talked about what you expected. It being kind of like boot camp. Um, is there more to what you actually got? You know, you, you talked about how university taught you some useful stuff, but not what you expected. What was the good stuff you didn't expect? Yeah. So um, there was stuff in the computing or the computer science department that I learned um, that I'll go to, into in a second. But as a kind of quick tangential the stuff that i took the most out of college was actually from my minor which was criminology so i learned a ton about criminology about how the court system works how um, policing works how we've created these um you know pipelines where the school to prison pipeline where people are basically predestined to be in prison because of how they're taught in school and um it opened me up to a lot of social issues and you know, issues that I was never exposed to and different ideas and different ways of thinking about these complex problems. And I came from a small Southern town. So I, my ideas and my understanding of the world expanded greatly and my empathy for humanity and my view of like what the actual problems were in society changed dramatically because of that. And the reason I took the, that minor is because I still, when I started school, I had this idea that I was going to be um, doing network security. Hmm. And it, but I came away from it with so much more than I ever anticipated. Um, I, in that program, definitely benefited from some amazing, passionate teachers who um, they weren't getting paid what they should have. Uh, because they, they instilled upon me a lifelong lessons and understandings of the world and um, so that that majorly of anything else I, I took a lot out of um, <clears throat> in terms of the actual computer science I did a um, several courses in 3D animation and um, digital art that was a ton of fun and um, the other thing that I took a lot out of was a course in the ethics of computer computing and computer science in general, where we would basically read stories or read books or whatever um, papers, and then kind of have class discussions. And I've always been a loudmouth, so, and I've always known that uh, the way to get a teacher to like you is to be a participant in class. So I was an active participant in that class, and it just so happened that there was a another kid who liked to just argue and he kind of became my arch ne ne nemesis. And because of him, I did very well in that class because um, we would just kind of argue and the other kids I'm sure were very help, very happy because then they didn't have to talk and the teacher uh, um, was very uh, good at kind of instrumenting that discussion. And I learned a lot from that too. Uh, the one thing that kind of sticks out in my mind from that, um, those times and I, a lot does, but primarily um, how women are portrayed in video games primarily or ah. up until very recently where there's kind of been starting to be a shift, but that mm -hmm. was one thing um, I took out of it was like, and now that I see that a lot when I'm uh, playing video games or picking out a character in a video game, I'm like, these women are very over-sexualized. There's no minority characters, um, things like that. And so it, it opened me up to a lot of the uh, complex issues that we face in computer science that a lot of us don't really think about 
on the surface where we're thinking, oh, I just write code. And we're like, no, well, you're actually, you're creating processes that impact people and they can either impact people in a negative or a positive way. You can't just write code and um, it exists and you just be like, okay, well, I'm done with it. Like for, yeah. uh, for example, one thing that's kind of come up very recently is um, how Twitter's algorithm crops images. Yep. Um, so if, if anyone's not aware, there's, um, there's been a large discussion recently because you can put um, a picture of a white man and a picture of a black man on, on a uh, large image. And no matter how you arrange or um, kind of order the, the, the images, Twitter will always default to uh, the white male. And similarly with um, the, my favorite one is they had a picture of Ted Cruz and then they also had a picture of Ted Cruz, but they photoshopped breasts onto him. And every single time the algorithm would choose the busty Ted Cruz. So okay. the issues like that, that we don't really think about, but you know, those are, um, those are harmful. Those are harmful algorithms that are out in the world existing, running and making those decisions. And um, a, a lot of my, a lot of that ethics class really kind of opened my eyes to those types of issues. Well, um, thank you. I'm, if I ever start a hideous parody band, I am naming it Busty Ted Cruz. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it, it was not the image I wanted to see when I was um, eating my breakfast, but I, it, I it highlights that. a good issue. Yeah, no, it's it's true, and I I think you've I think you've described you know the, this issue pretty well. And you know, people talk about, uh, and I I'm sure you have a lot of good rebuttals to this one. I'm just putting it out there, you know, mm -hmm. as a record of people saying things. Oh yes, it's an algorithm. It can't be, you know, it can't be racist for always choosing the uh, the, you know, the, the the white man over the black man. What I'll say is, imagine for a moment a universe in which it did the opposite and always chose the black man. There is not the slightest chance that that would have gotten pushed to production at Twitter. Not no. the slightest, just because they'd have noticed that problem. And so when people talk about, you know, the algorithm is racist, uh, you know, an algorithm can't be racist in the same way that if you uh, turn a fire hose on a black man in Selma, Alabama in the 1960s South, the fire hose can't be racist, it's just a fire hose. But the effect of the fire hose can certainly be racist. Um, and so saying the algorithm can't be racist is a little like saying the fire hose can't be racist. Yeah, but there are people that have that fire hose in their hands. And so you, you have to mm -hmm. kind of aim, aim your criticism upward at the, uh, at, at the person behind it. Right. And there are people who made that fire hose. <clears throat> uh, yes, also true. Um, and this, you know, this kind of thing gets very sticky very fast. Because, of course, if you're a fire hose manufacturer, you can't very well just sample your fire hoses with don't do anything I disapprove of. Um, well, I mean, you could, but... Uh, yeah. Capitalism has no mechanism to enforce that. At some point, you're Dr. Bronner yelling into the void of people's showers. I don't, you know Dr. Bronner? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. If you, ever, uh, if you ever go to somebody's house and you see a soap bottle, uh, like mm -hmm. a, a shampoo bottle or, uh, or liquid soap or something like that, and it's entirely covered in dense text that sort of reads like someone very religious on the street corner having right. a long conversation with you, that's Dr. Bronner. Okay. Uh, and I on know one... what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, so that's... Um, and you can you can write that all over your shampoo bottles, but you can't really force people to to abide by it. All you can do is sell them shampoo or not. Right. Though I yeah. think it's just liquid soap. You know what I mean. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. No, that's that makes sense. It, it's interesting to me. Uh, ethics in computing was not a thing that was a, a deal when I uh, when I graduated in 1998. Um, we were we were all sort of wondering if computing at all was a thing that was going to persist very much longer at that point. I mean, it seemed 
reasonably probable, but uh, yeah, I don't know how much money I'd have bet on it, uh, other than, I guess, basing my entire future career on it, but I, I wasn't terribly sensible at the time. Uh, I, oh, yeah. Out of curiosity, you mentioned specifically the portrayal of women in video games, uh, and my first thought was, ah, did you watch a lot of, Arne uh, of Anita Sarkeesian? Was that I did not. You did not? Okay, no. so you did, you did that and you haven't watched Feminist Frequency. Um, I assume it was at least a source for your instructor. Uh, it it must have been. My instructor was um was a young woman like very recently out of college, and she was fiery, and I loved her. Yeah, and she she taught a lot. So, I would absolutely, uh, if you enjoyed that class, go watch the Anita Sarkeesian videos, Feminist Frequency. They're really good. They're I definitely really will. I, I certainly, you know, if you were online at the time, it was hard not to see a lot of criticism of them. And what was striking to me was I saw a lot of people that complimented specifics of them, and I saw no criticism of them that bothered to cite specifics. It was extremely clear that there were people who were bothered by the idea of it, but couldn't find almost anything in the execution to quibble with, which to me is the sign of a really good thing. If the ideological opponents of something can't find anything in the execution to quibble with, that means you should go see it, because it was executed incredibly well. Right. Um, I'm, yeah, big fan of the Anita Sarkeesian videos. She's good. I will uh, definitely, definitely take a look at that, because it, it's, a, it's a quite an interesting topic, and I think the more that we as engineers educate ourselves on these types of issues, the less likely we are going to create harmful software. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. No matter what you do, someone will find a way to call it harmful. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't mean that you shouldn't attempt it. Just uh, in a world where you create something so incredible that it takes us all up multiple levels, pretend you personally were to do that, that it brings the whole world's sort of am ambient good feelings up a couple of levels because you've done something that does that much good, what will happen is that the people who are now living in this better world will be able to see up several more levels that we haven't quite gotten to, and you, you will be, among others, blamed for not taking it up the next step. Um, this, that might sound bitter, and I really don't mean it that way. The best thing we can possibly do is to leave a world to our children where they will look around at this thing we're massively proud of and say, it could be better than that. Because the alternative <laughs> is to leave them a world that's just awful. And they'll look up by the same degree from what they see around them and say, eh, it could be better than that. And at that point, you know... Yeah, it was, but we screwed it up by about a couple of levels. So, uh, yeah, it started that way. <laughs> right. Given the choice, given the choice, you would love to look around at those darn ungrateful kids who don't understand how much better things are. That's, that's the good situation, and you ought to aim for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, but I'm going back to the courses, the other one that I can think of, and I would say the most impactful outside of, like uh, taking away just kind of the theory and the um, the idea-based classes was a course that was named um, Software Engineering, I think was the name mm -hmm. of it, which um, was Good not job. really indicative of what it actually was because what it actually was is a – he had he was at least in his 70s, and it, he was an old contract program manager uh, or product manager, and he taught – us a lot about software design or in terms of like cycles and agile and uh, methodologies and how you collect requirements and how you talk to stakeholders and how you communicate um, these requirements and the the 
entire class was based around this uh, kind of like an idea of a capstone project, um, which, which I partnered with what I believe to be the smarter kid in the room because I, I was at a point in my life where I was not prepared to do as much work in school. And um, it was towards the end of my tenure in college. And we did it in um, Salesforce um, with Apex Java, and it was awful, and I hated it. But we we got a good grade. But the ideas and the lessons that I took I took out of that course um, um, from that gentleman were extremely helpful and um, useful and applicable compared to many of the courses that were not. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's wonderful what you can learn from somebody who's seen all of the horrible situations. Right. Yeah, and he was a he was a government contractor, so even uh, more so, he was able. He had he had lots of lots of stories about. Uh, oh, they had this problem, and then this happened. And I think one of the ones that I remember, which wasn't a personal story, but it was how um, there is speculation that uh, the there was like a lot of attempts um, around two thousand one to digitalize the FBI databases because. Um, you know, FBI department in California, every, they're using, you know, paper and they're filing things and they're not sharing as much information as they could be with the departments in New York and L.A. and yada, yada. And there's a lot of speculation that um, had they been able to complete the software project that was started to digitalize all those files, connect all those programs um, and departments, that they would have been able to prevent 9-11. But uh, they weren't able to, and right after um, they they hired someone new to take it over, and they did an agile, and that's kind of like the default agile um, success story of where they they took this project that had been failing for years and cost millions and millions of dollars to the taxpayers, and they used agile methodology to um, create it rather quickly. I used to really believe in that kind of story, you know. I used to I used to hear that kind of story and get the little warm feeling that you're supposed to get, and then I remember the actual things that were said by people like uh, George W. Bush and Cheney about 9/11, and I think about what succeeding in that project would have had to mean, and what would have had to be different in the world for it to be possible. When they talked about a failure of imagination, and how you know okay this this idea crossed our desks, but but nobody thought it would actually happen not their literal desks, but, you know, pe people not far from them. The real problem was that people were not prepared to take that seriously as a thing that could happen. And then suddenly it happened. And then suddenly it was much easier to do this. People were suddenly willing to take it, take it uh, as a thing that could happen. And so I think what really would have had to happen sooner for that system to be possible was 9-11. Right. Which kind of, you know, means the, the yeah, which, which means that the idea that if, if only we'd had this sooner, 9-11 could have been prevented. No, we needed an atrocity to convince us that atrocities of that sort could happen because we truly didn't believe it. And you can automate people at scale, but what you discover is that the people automated at scale, if you do an incredibly good job, have at least all the same limits as the people you're automating. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of why I said speculation, because there's absolutely no way we can ever know. There's absolutely no way we could ever test that theory. Um, it was just a it was an anecdote he kind of used for he was a big preacher of agile. And I yeah. um, I don't think the scope of this conversation includes a discussion around whether agile is good or bad or um, whether everyone's different brand of agile is good or bad. But um, 
it was a, a lot of personal anecdotes that he pulled out of his life um, as someone who actually worked in um, computing. He was actually a product manager, um, and he was able to then distill those lessons onto us uh, versus the people that had worked in labs and done math their entire lives and only focused on the theoretical um, like, you know, how are we going to create this like backtracking algorithm and, you know, this and that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, here's a piece of that that I think is, is relevant to our topic today. Uh, you were definitely learning about his brand of Agile from him in university. And you've turned around and uh, gone on to write software for a living, at least for a while here. How has it held up for you? How has it served you professionally? His brand of Agile was, um, I mean, he definitely was you know, partly preaching from a book, um, sure. whatever our primary source was at the time and partly from his own experience. And I think the, I think the most applicable thing that he said was that um, no one implements agile the same. True. And it's incredibly true. And it's in exactly what I found uh, my first day on, um, on the job is that my boss who was also um, an old school programmer and had done some product management, He's like, we, uh, I believe in Agile, but I don't believe we, we do our own type of Agile and we do what works for best for us. And I think it was, a, it was a lesson that my teacher had tried to kind of teach us that at the end of the day, you have all these theories and you have all these ideas, but at the end of the day, you need to do what's best for you and your team. And that might not be the quote unquote Agile way, the Agile manifesto, but um, the ideas or the kind of themes surrounding it is what is more important that you take out of, you know, short cycles, um, iterating quickly, uh, waterfall, wa learning about waterfall design was um, very helpful. Um, and literally just seeing him diagram out like this is waterfall design um, was incredibly helpful. And, you know, there have been times in my career where I have um, worked for companies where I'm like, Hey, what we're doing right now is we're we're waterfalling this design. We're trying to create this feature. We're trying to create this application, and um, it's going to fail because um, we're not we're not communicating enough with the consumer. We're not iterating enough. We're not um, pushing enough. You know what what have you? But once you kind of understand and know, I think what the other um, alternatives to agile are, it's easier to say, okay, no, we don't want to be doing this. That is not agile whatever your definition of agile is it's just like it's easier to note once you know the kind of alternatives of the way people tend to build software what makes me happiest about that is the i the, the term waterfall for that design process and the modern formulation of waterfall as it is generally cited um the paper existed a long time ago but was almost never cited uh, it, but it was set up as in kind of a straw man position by the early Agile folks. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not a widely cited paper or really even a, a widely, you know, it, it was not even quite what the approach really was. Um, but it has now been summed up as not Agile by the Agile folks and is now what is pointed to as the old process. Uh, whereas, you know, just before the Agile folks did that, if you asked people to describe their process, it actually wouldn't have looked much like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting and it's kind of, it's definitely a generalization, but it's definitely what I have found out in the wild and have seen and have experienced. It's definitely kind of true how the how you kind of start from point A and then you you know you start working and then you um, you go away and you iterate for a long long time and then you come back and you deliver and then it's not at all what they want. And I think just that general idea of iterating alone in the dark, um, you know 
in the dark figuratively is not going to help you produce um, useful software. You may produce useful software for that moment in time, hmm. but at the end of the day, it's not going to be something that your team can iterate on. Um, I, I generally find a lot of issues because sometimes I have this issue where um, and I definitely blame it on my ADHD where I will get really excited about a project and then I'll, I'll go away, hunger down in the dark and, you know, program in the middle of the night. And then I'll come back and I, I'll deliver this massive, massive PR, this massive change. And we're like, we don't want this. This is a, uh, yes, you did it, but it's, um, you know, it's these, there's just so much scope and so much stuff that get combobulated into like one giant mess. And um, it's not a great way to build software. I'm definitely a little biased about the waterfall thing because there's one place I've worked that really pretty much did waterfall the way people point at. Uh, that was Palm back in the day, same, same folks who made the Palm pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked on Palm OS with a team there. And I've got to say, um, they probably had the best engineering process of anybody I worked with until I switched from C to Ruby. Um, and the Ruby stuff was better not because it was better executed or by better people, but just because it's so much easier to do better on much smaller teams. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely have seen, and I, I think that's what I love most about Ruby. Um, I often lament um, the, the years I learned learning Java because I almost uh, changed my major because I hated Java. I was like, this makes no sense. Um, you know, my teachers weren't great, uh, just in general. And I, I was homeschooled for a period of time, and I, I'm not going to give my thoughts on homeschooling at this time. But I will say that the one thing it did allow me to do is become very, very good at what I will call being sneaky. But really what it was is learning how to use the internet to find things. And um, that skill has really been <laughs> probably the thing that's benefited me most of my career. But um, when I was in when I was in college and taking some of these courses like Java, I knew how to go find um, programs on GitHub. And I knew how to go find, you know, source code. And I knew how to do this and that. And the only reason I knew how to do that is because as a child, I knew how to um, I'm basically cheat. I had to learn very, very on um, very early on because I didn't have as much supervision. Like, oh, well, I'm lazy and I don't want to do this. So I'm just going to find the answers. So um, that that benefited me in some ways and definitely took away in a lot of other areas. But um, the I hated Java um, and I was still uniquely good at programming itself and thinking about these problems and debugging them and kind of thinking about software and architecture, but not the actual writing of Java specifically. And I also struggled a little bit with PHP, but not as much. But as soon as I found Ruby um, at an internship, actually, I was so pissed. I was so angry and I was just so like, <laughs> I was, it made me very nihilistic for a little while because I was like all this time, all these examples that they show on the boards, all these things that they're making us write, all these like massive programs they're making us write, they're making us write them in Java. Like in Java is not the most readable language at all. So like, I was just so angry that <laughs> this entire time there existed this thing that I could have read that would have stripped away all the nuance of how, like, a language is formatted and instead focused on here's the algorithm that we are trying to model. And, yeah, I, I have very negative feelings about Java. Um, and it, the funniest part is they taught us Java, I believe, for the sole purpose of making us understand OOP. 
And it was not until I got to Ruby that I understood OOP. And suddenly all these things in Java started making more sense to me. And I'm like, this is crap. This is just crap. Have you uh, by any chance seen the talk by Avdi Grimm about how um, programming is almost all transactional? It's almost all about the idea that you give an instruction, the instruction completes, the result comes back, and the world contains almost none of that in reality. You, you know the talk I mean? I believe I do, yeah. I've, I, there's, my head is filled with so many talks. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen that one, though. Fair enough. I always remember Avdi's talks, but uh, it turns out I'm, I'm from the South, too. I mean, Texas. Not, not everybody right. in the South agrees Texas counts, but it, geographically, it's in the South. Yeah. Culturally, it's its own thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Avdi kind of has that, that presence like a, like a tent revival preacher. And uh, for whatever reason, that works really well for me. I, I don't normally think of myself as a Southerner in most ways, but, but I could watch Avdi talk all day. No, 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 no trouble. Um, but one of the things he talks about a lot there is how object-orientedness, the way that Alan Kay considered it. Alan Kay is a big, tall man with a giant 70s mustache, but he also coined the phrase object-oriented programming and, uh, and invented the small talk programming language. His idea of OOP looks essentially nothing like C++ or Java or any of its you know, close descendants that do it in a similar way. Um, and yeah, in the same way you talk about how Ruby really let you understand OOP, um, Alan Kay's idea looked less like Java or really even Ruby. Uh, it was more toward like Erlang or a um, little like the Scala actor model, like very large, powerful, independent objects that could just kind of consistently do, do things and send signals back and forth. But by send signals back and forth, I don't mean a function call that immediately returns. I mean, you lob the signals over the fence, and at some point, something may come back to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's interesting how they kind of teach OOP because I was looking back through just the names of the courses I took and I'm like, oh, this is called Intro to Data Structure. I didn't learn jack about data structure in this course. And this is Introduction to OOP. I'm like, we didn't learn jack about OOP. In this course, I, uh, I found a, a Tetris program on GitHub and then repackaged it um, you know, and things like that. So, well, that's valuable for job interviews. Yeah, it turns out. Um, I, I'm only sort of kidding. No, it's it's not a joke. That's the funny part. Um, I I fell into my career um, in an interesting way. I at some point in college, I became very I I don't know when or how. Um, it was somehow it was sometime after I was diagnosed with ADHD, and I was put on medication for it. And um, suddenly, like all these things in my life, I'm like, oh, that's not normal. And they're like, no, that's not normal. And I'm like, oh. And so suddenly life became like a lot easier and more manageable for me. And I realized, um, you know, I'm learning nothing applicable because I had this idea that I was going to walk out of school and be handed like, you know, a, a thousand, $100,000 a year position. And I don't know what made me think that. I think that was kind of why I said that they, they put these ideas in my head of what I was going to come out of computer science with. And that was not the case. But yeah. at some point, I became very aware of this. And I started my, uh, I started learning, relearning, I guess, HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And I, um, because I had done a little bit of it in high school, and I started my own, uh, what I will call web development company, sure. um, kind of doing sideline stuff. And my designs were absolutely terrible. And so sure. what I, I took, um, I changed my degree uh, concentration away from systems to 
uh, digital art because at the time I had taken all of the systems computing courses and the only thing left were uh, chemistry and biology. And I was like, I don't want to learn chemistry and biology for computer science. I was like, that makes no sense. I was like, no. that you can take a digital art course and you can um, just get the digital art system or digital art focus. So I did that. And um, my goal of that was to learn how to be a better designer so I could make better websites. And while I was there, the, um, the professor recommended an internship at town um, doing graphic design. I took that internship. And that is actually where um, I learned how to write Ruby and Rails. And that was the company I joined after college writing Rails um, because they kind of discovered that uh, one of their design interns knew how to code. And they're like, holy crap, we're behind on all these things. And there are people that like need things done that like we're not going to you know, take one of these people that we're paying a lot of money to to write an HTML um, print file, print format file. Yeah. So um, that's kind of how I felt into it. And once I once I started learning Ruby and learning Rails, it was kind of like this click because I didn't want to do coding because I was very disenfranchised with it. I hated Java. I thought that Java was what I was going to have to write, and I didn't want to do that. So I was you know exploring other paths. But once I learned Ruby and Rails, I I kind of came back and had like a different kind of approach, and um, I. I'll never forget the, the one class that I should have paid more attention to um, that I definitely didn't was a, it was a sequel class. It was very low level sequel, mm-hmm. but um, the final project was a, they had like a list of all the sequel uh, queries you had to write. And it was like my final semester and I had learned rails at this point and I was working another semester as a, as a software developer this time for the same company. And uh, the teacher assigned me this group, um, the group, that I was in were not the most motivated. And I, I've always been a very big victim of kind of hustle culture, um, I'll call it, but I've always been a very big hustler and um, that was just probably instilled in me in high school or in childhood. But my group was not interested in working with me. Um, they weren't really interested in doing anything. They didn't like what still I tell people to this day, I was like, these were all majors. They were all about to graduate with computer science degree. None of them knew how to use Git which I think is like the single most, maybe the only important thing you need to know. Like if you're coming in from base zero, like you need to know how to use Git at least from like a very low level or from a high level idea. So I was, and uh, the teacher wanted us to do the project. They had only taught us PHP at this point for building web applications, even though this was my second basically web application focused course. And um, I learned Rails and I, I asked the teacher, I was like, hey, I, I want to do this in Rails. And she was like, go for it. And at the end of the semester, I was the only one that ever contributed to the project. And she asked me to show her in, in, in the code where, um, where the database calls were, where the SQL was. And I had to kind of explain to her, I was like, well, I didn't actually write SQL. I was yep. like, there's this abstraction away from it. And she was like, well, I kind of need the SQL to like prove that you've done this. And so I was literally going with her and copying lines out of the Rails console and the Rails log. Yep. And they're like, here's this and here's this. And uh, the project was very, very full featured compared to all the other stuff because everyone else was writing PHP and moving slowly. And um, I, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and also just kind of the look on my teacher's face because I don't, I knew she knew of Rails. Um, and I, she was so sweet. I love her to death, but 
um, learning PHP 5, like I feel like at minimum we should have been learning the word Laravel, but I hadn't heard of it until um, after college. But um, showing her Rails, she's like, and you did all this by yourself with Ruby. And I was like, yes. And I was like, I don't understand why this isn't being taught. And she's like, and you know, now I don't either. <laughs> it's an absolute revolution compared to anything before it. I mean, there are some things after it that are that are about as good. I mean, it's, you know, if you sit down and do Django, you're not going to say, wow, you know, Rails is that much better. Eh, you might, it depends how you feel, but it's more of a matter of taste and less of a matter mm -hmm. of, wow, this is a whole other level of thing. Uh, yeah, the framework never heard. I didn't know of any frameworks um, in college, which I feel was a major bummer, especially when we were having courses to build applications mm -hmm. uh, from scratch where I'm like, okay, we did this in Salesforce, but we actually could have done this in Django or Laravel or Rails and been done in half the time with like way better of a result and way less yeah. of the heartache and the, you know, the struggle. Yeah, that's, that's another major difference between, again, when I was in, when I was in college and when you were, um, is, yeah, I, I know exactly why they didn't teach me any interesting frameworks like that. They didn't exist, you know, effectively right. none of them. <laughs> But yeah, at this point, it seems sort of like malpractice not to teach you at least one framework of that general kind. It does. And I, that's why I say I kind of look back on colleges with a kind of very cynical look. Because at the end of the day, the things that I do day to day, um, I didn't learn in college. I learned on my own. I learned through internships. Um, the majority I learned through mentors. Um, the one thing my, my job did very well out of the gate when I first um, entered the workforce is they assigned me a mentor. And uh, that was two, two and a half years ago. And to this day, I still meet with that same mentor every week. We don't work at the same company anymore. We've definitely diverged in paths, but um, still very close. And I still learn a lot and take away from that relationship. And then the second job I got um, after leaving my initial one, I only took because I um, truly believed that one of the engineers that that company would take me to a different level that I would never be able to get where I was at. And the pay was the same. Um, the benefits were about the same, if not worse. And uh, people were very confused while I was leaving. I was like, I'm leaving to work with this person because this person will be able to mentor me. They've promised to mentor me. I can already tell, like we've paired on the weekends. I already know he's a good mentor um, and I want to learn more. And uh, so, yeah, I think really, if anything, the takeaway that I got out of college was Focus less on, um, I mean, obviously do the courses and you'll take something away from that. But until you kind of get into a situation where um, you you use it in practice, but you don't understand, and then you can kind of look back at the theory, um, at the hash, like the hash tables and the, the big O notation and like, okay, yeah, if I nest these loops like four layers down, there's going to be um, complexity and data that it's going to get out of control. And being able to spot that after the fact is a lot easier. But in the moment, finding someone um, who knows more than you and latching onto that person and multiple people if possible is kind of the way that I have gotten to the level of success that I find myself at. And that's one reason why I wanted to hop on this call. I've seen some of your talks in person. I've obviously seen some of them in um, on YouTube and stuff like that. And you offered on Twitter, you're like, I, if anyone wants to come on, I was like, I would love to talk to Noah Gibbs. And that is kind of how I've gotten to where I'm at, just asking or finding ways to talk to smart people. Well, I'm, I'm really honored by that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> if you have anything you want to ask me, you know, d during the call or otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk, but cool.
Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think that's the what I tried to tell every – because obviously because mentoring was such a big thing for me. Um, and I, I often wonder what, what college would have been like if I had been paired up with a senior computer science student as a freshman. Yeah. Um, because now in like looking back on it, that would be like what I would want to have like this person that is like your go-to person or that can help you. Um, and maybe not like not drag you along in any way, but be a resource. Um, and I, I encourage everyone to try to find that person and to not be afraid to um, just ask for help and find people and find smart people and follow them religiously. Like uh, an example I give is I read everything that the evil Martians put out. In terms yes. of code, blog posts, I don't care. I read the code. I read the blog post. It is all excellent. And I, you have to find smart people doing things that you're interested in and just latch on to everything that they put out. That makes a lot of sense. What I'll say about your idea with the older students is that a lot of, I think, the value from the mentoring relationship comes from you getting to talk to somebody who's had bad ideas bashed their head against reality, discovered that those are bad ideas and corrected them. And for a lot of ideas that computer science students have, being a senior still in university is not, not where you want them to be. They haven't had enough chance to bash their head against actual reality yet at that point. Whereas the guy you mentioned who taught the, you know, the, the class about software engineering and project management and is in his 70s and has been doing that on... Uh, you know, on, on government projects, like that's a fellow who can set you straight on a number of things and you won't believe him about all of them and he won't even necessarily be right anymore on all of them because you're going to, you go into a different world than he did. But, um, but he, he can certainly tell you why a particular thing seems wrong to him. And the problem with, you know, early, having a mentor early on with strong ideas that hasn't necessarily tested him is you kind of get the impression that what you want from a mentor is to listen to their strong ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the least valuable things a mentor can do for you, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's a great point. It's more so like, what are the other options? Because there's not enough grad students. Um, there's not going to be people in the community who are going to willing, be willing to donate that time. Um, yeah. It's it's an unfortunate, um, but I, I I think about it a lot because, like I said, mentoring has been a big part for me. I uh, I often tell people who ask me to mentor them that I don't think I'm at that place where yeah. I can um, accurately be like you know because a senior developer in my mind is someone who uh, not only knows a bunch of solutions to a given problem but has tried many of them and knows which ones are not going to work. Um, yeah. as and a kind of a mid-level developer is someone who can think of a lot of solutions and a junior is like, I can maybe figure this out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a hard problem. Um, and I don't know if there is a solution right now. So I'll tell you what worked for me. And I think it's a, I think it's a broader solution. It's not always, you know, perfect, but I think it works better than mentoring when you are in an environment with a lot of peers and not many people with real world experience. So there were two other guys that were freshmen at the same time I was, and we were all people that were very interested in programming, and we, we all had a, you know, a fair amount of experience at it. Um, none of us had any formal training when we got to university. None of us had any formal training, really, you know, pretty much almost at all. We'd read some books. But the main thing that set us apart was we'd written a bunch of code, and a lot of code that we'd written had broken. And that's how you, how you learn at that point, is you do something, you try it, it fails, and now you know one more way things can fail. Um, and we kept talking to each other and kept doing things together pretty much all the way through 
college uh, more for them than for me because you know they they uh, they both graduated after four years and I added a major graduated after five, uh, but that was a lot of what I found. I could do without having anybody around me that had a lot of real world experience. And realistically, had I known who I was talking to, there are a few people that had some real world experience and I could have worked with them on what they were good at. Uh, but I didn't know nearly enough to identify them. But I did know easily enough to identify the people that kept trying stuff and having it fail. And so even if you can't find a mentor, even if, even if you don't know enough about your environment to recognize a mentor if one walks up to you, you can definitely know enough to recognize the people who just keep bashing their head against that wall. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, one thing that I, I, I never really realized until later, something I subconsciously did is um, I, in computer science where I went to school, there were a lot of people who were there on a GI Bill. Um, that is to say, they had been in the military in the United States, they had served their time, and when you get out, you can go to a, a university. Um, I, I think it's free, although I'm sure it's actually not actually free. I think but, if you put in enough years, it's actually paid for. I, I believe that. I, I hope so. Um, but I mean, those were the people, those people who had been in the military, they were older, They a lot of them had kids, um, a lot of them had families and wives, and those were the people that I often found myself um, getting on projects with and working with and like, you know, hanging out in the lab with after class and stuff like that, because those were the people that had the real life experience that I lacked. Um, I may have been better at the, the writing the actual code, but they were able to see more, um, use their experiences to see more like pitfalls. And so the way we were designing things or, you know, a broad, a broader perspective that, um, that I lacked. And so, yeah, that's another, um, an option is to find the people that are not, um, you know, 19 and young and dumb and haven't, you know, been out in the real world and latch onto the experiences that they've had. Yeah. That's, um, a lot of what they have that, uh, that, that I've, I tremendously value is, is point of view. Um, mm -hmm. going back to Alan Kay, again, the guy with the giant mustache, the, the object oriented programming guy. Um, he was the one that said a change of perspective is worth 80 IQ points, um, which is a, is a really good way to think of it, I think. Um, I mean, the flip side of that is that if they've got the wrong perspective, then that's, you know, 80 IQ points down. But as a rule, people like that tend to have a lot of practice that, that a student doesn't and that, you know, a lot of us don't as far as figuring out what's actually important. And if they can do that, they're way out ahead of us. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome to program with people who only do it for the code and have a powerful sense of aesthetics about it. And it's awesome to program with people who absolutely don't do it for the code and understand the code is never the important thing. Now look beyond the code to the actual important thing and let the code reflect that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm, uh, I'm still not at that point where it's um, easy for me to think outside of the code. I'm definitely... Um, I call myself a code monkey. I've been told that that is not a, a very good word uh, to describe myself as in, if I'm interviewing, but I, I, like, I like to dig into the code and do the code and um, be in that world. And uh, another thing that old uh, product manager taught me is, and I, I remember to this day, the day he said this, is that if you guys think that 
Uh, programming is about sitting away from everyone and being a recluse and writing code in the dark. Um, you are wrong. And he laid out every way that it was wrong. And I was so upset because all this time I, I thought that I was going to be able to uh, uh, avoid people and, you know, not have people problems and just write code. And then he shattered my worldview and my worldview got shattered even more when I actually left and got actual jobs. And like coding is not um, about writing code in my opinion or software development in general because software development is it's a people problem it's a communication problem and it's about uh kind of working together and using this common language that we call code to um articulate describe and um uh, solve problems and it's so much so much communication that i i wish that uh idea had been kind of emphasized at the very beginning because um i had no idea i, I didn't i didn't want it but i uh I fell into it and a lot of uh, good teachers, good mentors along the way have taught me to have that empathy and that communication. And um, it is, it's a very communicative uh, program and um, kind of a workforce. Yeah, it's one of those those horrible things that I, you know, I, I felt betrayed in the same way when I finally realized is um, if a business is working well, Everything inside the business needs to be oriented toward what the business does. If you're in a good business, which is not all of them, but it's a lot of them, if you're in a good business, then what you're oriented around is helping people in a way they appreciate and will hand you money in return for. I mean, there's a lot of ways to help people, and there are a lot of kinds of businesses that do it, but one way or another, a business has to be in that business, in helping people in a way where they will hand you money in return. Um, and sure, okay, every one of those steps is subtle, but it means that if you're doing software for a business, you have to in some way be doing software for that. And if you're not doing software that directly does that, then you have to be doing software that helps somebody do that. Or, you know, at some point they realize you're not doing them any good and they stop paying you money to make software. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's an exception for that if you're in, in some different organizations. Like, if what you were in it, in it for was to kill people, you could probably go do software for the military. But, you know, short of an organization with a very different sort of goal, presumably you're, you're in business to help people, and specifically to help people in a way that they're aware of and grateful for and will hand you money in return for. And, yeah, that's, that's a communication-heavy business, and it's empathy-heavy business, and uh, it's also a hideously manipulative business because, you know, making people grateful is a different thing than, than, than improving their lives. But, yeah, it's Absolutely. easy to say. I'll do, I'll do something else completely unrelated to that. No, no, you won't. Not for long. Not if you, not if your employer has any actual competence. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. So, I feel like I I overall know the answer, but tell me about how well you feel the overall university learning experience that you had uh, prepared you for for going out and working. Uh, very poorly. Uh, did college. College, uh, to me, taught me how to um, be an adult in a lot of ways and how to um, think about complex social issues and then be surrounded by people who aren't the same as you, which is the, like the big problem coming from a small town where everyone thinks like you. Um, you're then taught to think like them, and it's just kind of a cesspool, or it can be a cesspool. Um, mine was a cesspool. So, you know, for me, College, in a lot of ways, taught me the human relationship side of um, computing. It taught me how to communicate with people, how to talk to people who had different ideas than me, how to empathize with them, and how to think about 
um, social issues and, you know, solutions to them and then, or at least just to recognize them, that they exist, that they're there um, and not to ignore them or take them for granted. And in terms of my computer science degree, largely it did not help me. Um, did it help me in terms of uh, the fact that I can walk into a job and put down on my resume that I have a major or a bachelor of science degree? Yes, absolutely. That is a privilege that I have. Um, other than that piece of paper, could I have learned everything and much more and be at a different place in my career had I not gone to college? The answer is probably yes, but it could be no. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I don't look back kindly on my college years. I think of them as a major waste of time and money. But um, there was a lot of good that I often forget and... Uh, I would say, though, that if you are thinking about whether to go to a four-year university or to go to a boot camp or to go to some type of two-year vocational school, I would think very heavily about what your goal is. Because if your goal is to expand your overall understanding of the world and be around people who are different than you, then maybe a four-year university is a good option if you are privileged enough to be able to afford it or to be accepted to it or you know all the other things that go into it. But if your goal is to get a job um, as a computer, uh, a computer programmer, I would not do it. I would uh, advise against it. It is hard to you know, look at the people who have been through a six-month boot camp and then three and a half more years of job experience, which they were also, generally speaking, you know, paid for at the time, and not think that they're ahead of you know, where, where you'd have been after a four-year degree. There was a, a fellow a while back who pointed out that um, one oddity there, one difficulty, is that I was not really prepared to go into a corporate job of any kind, of any description at the time that I did, and four years earlier I was even less prepared. And so in some sense, uh, I need to give the university credit for keeping me off to the side in a monkey cage, not doing too much damage to my own reputation by putting myself in a place I shouldn't have been when I shouldn't have been there. But if you ignore that bit. <laughs> yeah, that that's a great point. And the only reason I probably wouldn't view that as, an, well, you know, maybe. Um, I have worked and had a job since I was legally allowed to work. Um, before I left for college, I was the manager. Um, of the place that I was working. So uh, yes, I, I would. I made a lot more mistakes along the way, like as I had jobs in college and then eventually became managers of those, I made mistakes. And that's also where I learned that I'm done managing. Um, but sure. uh, that, uh, that experience um, of, you know, you're not mature enough yet um, definitely um, exists, but it also definitely um, is because of the way I grew up. Um, and that's not to say that someone in a different experience with a different um, different values and different way of growing up wouldn't be, so. Yeah, I'm not saying everybody is like that. I mean, yeah, I'm just saying I was like that. <laughs> yeah, I was probably like that too. Fair enough. I, just something in the way you said that, and you know, ma manager of making mistakes, put, put together the phrase manager of making mistakes in my mind. And now that I get to, you know, be off by myself, and I can choose my job title to be anything that I, that I want it to be. I think, uh, I think my title from here on out may be department head, mistakes and malicious incompetence. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, 
my career took different a different meaning and a different um, level of velocity once I um, lost a lot of the arrogance that I had and was like, you know what? I screw up all the time. I don't know anything. Um, and everyone, I once I just started assuming that other people were smarter than me and being like, I don't know, or at least I'm going to assume that you know more than me and just trying to learn from them, um, I was able to excel at a much different level and pace. Um, and that is a lot that's a an issue i see with a lot of people um where they have this level of arrogance or they think that they can do it by themselves and it's simply it may be true but at what cost and um i think once you learn to humble yourself and uh i i told this to someone and they it's a it's something that i think about a lot is like i don't want to be the smartest person in the room and if i am then i'm going to go find a different room what i'll say about that is that you should assume that whether you're smarter than the people around you or not, you should assume they have something to teach you. Absolutely. If you're arrogant enough, then it turns out that a river lined by stones on both sides can teach you a lot, especially when you screw up. And it's not that the river's smarter than you, and it's not that the rocks are smarter than you, but if you're paying attention, you can still learn something from both of them. Absolutely. Yeah. The Losing the arrogance is... uh, uh, I don't think I'm not really sure I learned that in college, but once I did learn it, it was um, it was a big big turning point. Yeah, well, losing your arrogance is a continuous thing, and uh, if you mm-hmm. if you pay attention, you can keep doing it for a very long time. I'm certainly still in process. Um, getting to college was nice for me because um, I'd gone from well, how's this for arrogance? Really and genuinely being one of the smartest people I'd ever met, and definitely being the smartest person I was anywhere near on a regular basis. Uh, for many, many years, uh, to being in a place where I was smarter than average, but definitely had to work for it. Um, you know, that's that's worth a lot right there. You know, that, mm-hmm. that transition already already <laughs> left me a great deal better off than I, uh, I otherwise could, could reasonably have been. Yeah, I guess the same for me. I was always the kid that was very smart, but uh, very, very unapplied. So it didn't really, I, in my head, knew that I was smarter than what I was typically... Uh, putting out Um, and that was uh, an annoying confliction that I struggled with until I learned that there's a reason for that. I thought I was smart and hardworking until I met some people who were smart hardworking and had been competing with other smart hardworking people for Mm -hmm. years and then I discovered that you know doing that off by yourself having never seen the real thing you will never compete up to the level of people who have had to actually scramble for it. Oh yeah absolutely. But that's all right. You know, eventually I met them, and then I got to, you know, start scrambling. Yeah, so, and then they teach you. Yeah, yeah. So well, what do you do to improve your, your skills these days? Ooh, I do a lot, um, I would like to think. I, I will say that recently I have been in what I will call, what I am going to call uh, moving forward is a slump. I am in a little bit of a slump right now. Um, that is, I think, to be minorly expected with the state of the world. Um, I've also lost a few family members very recently, and I've also changed jobs very recently. My last company, um, which is Code Fund, went under um, because of COVID-19. So I'm now in a new position um, working on new problems in a new area with um, a new version of Rails that I've never been on before. When I say new version of Rails, I mean Rails 4. Um, oh. and more legacy software. I have been very used to writing the edge. Um, so now I'm in a very large legacy code base and that is, uh, it's kicking my butt. So 
Um, so I've been in what I am calling a bit of a slump recently that I will eventually come out of. But um, I do a lot of um, I listen to a lot of podcasts on technology. Um, I've started listening to this one now. I'm subscribed to this one, so I'll definitely be listening avidly to this. Uh, I listen to the ones that I'm on, um, which used to be uh, the Ruby Blend. We had to shut that one down. But Remote Ruby with Chris Oliver, who is of Go Rails fame, and uh, Jason Charns, who uh, created Southeast Ruby, the Southeast Ruby Conference. Yep. And um, so I, I listen to a lot of technology-based podcasts. Um, I do a lot of learning on the side. I subscribe to things like Go Rails, and I learn from that. And uh, a lot of discussion. I love having discussions with people on Twitter about these ideas. Um, I do. I work on a bunch of open source when I can. And I commonly find the way these days that I level up is by uh, choosing choosing a project or like a, a solution that I would like to achieve, but I have no idea how to. And then um, just hacking on it on um, my own. And so I do a lot of that. And um, I don't read as much as I should, but I have I occasionally take another stab at it. So um, I will say, but I, I do read a bunch of blog posts. I write my own blog post. That always teaches me something. Coming across my own solution is always like, oh, I did know this. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, I, I, I try to stay very active in my learning, um, and I, that, that's kind of the way I do it. Mostly online materials, which is also basically how I taught myself in college. Makes sense. Yeah, all, all that makes sense. I, um, I'll definitely say that um, it's amazing to me how much you can learn as long as you're doing work. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it always feels a lot more pleasant to talk to other people and it feels more pleasant to read up on other people's solutions. And, you know, it sort of feels like a shortcut. But when I'm doing the work, I learn things I otherwise wouldn't have learned pretty routinely. And reading other people's stuff, I don't, I don't feel like that in the same way. Yeah, definitely uh, taking... I've, what I find is taking someone else's or reading their solution, but then just literally re-implementing it myself um, mm -hmm. with maybe my own spin, maybe not, and maybe just literally going through line by line and be like, okay, then they did this and then copying it over and understanding what that line does. And so I learned a lot. Recently, I've learned a lot more by reading source code, um, which is something that definitely uh, is harder to do um, the earlier in your career, but the more you kind of progress and as you kind of learn to read software, um, it has definitely um, become the way probably that I learn the most now. Instead of like, how do I do this thing with this gem? Um, you know, you can peruse the readme and definitely find the answer. But sometimes I like to just for the mere um, exercise of it, I will just open up the code and uh, find like the method that I'm trying to use and then or what I want to use and reading how it's implemented and understanding that. And sometimes that leads me to a place of like, oh, I don't need this gem or I don't need this library. This is like a, a one line method like in this library and then just abstracting that and being OK with that. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm a big fan of reading code. For me, a lot of what happened is I went from C, uh, like the, the, the C programming language, where um, 50,000 lines is not a large project, to Ruby, where 50,000 lines is kind of ludicrous and huge, uh, at least if you don't count tests. You know, sure, okay, anything anything really good is going to have a lot of tests. But but even so, you know, you can read 100 lines and you can get something interesting out of that. And if you're reading C, you know, 100 lines gets you almost nowhere. You know, 100 lines, you haven't put your shoes on in the morning. Right. Um, 
And so coming to Ruby has always felt, I don't know, like, like somebody from the 1930s who, who lived through the Great Depression and suddenly realizes that you, they've got all these twists of wire that they put on things everywhere. I could just keep those. I could have hundreds of those. I could never have to reach for an extra one again. I could never spend money on those again. And when I say it that way, it sounds like a terrible thing. But I don't know. In the same way, it's, it's, like, it's excellent that there's all this code everywhere and I can just read it. Like, it's not going to take me three days to get through a reasonable-sized project. I can do it in a couple of hours. Yeah. And the more you do it, the more you know where to look for things. Yeah. And I think that, it, that definitely uh, helps lower that time to finding the solution. Yeah. Yeah, well, and as far as knowing where to look for things, reading code is by far the best way I've found to, to teach myself that, to, to learn yeah. that skill. Absolutely. All right. So you know you much better than I know you. There's something on this topic, the whole, you know, your education, how it's prepared you for, uh, for working uh, in, uh, in, in this job. There's something that you're the best person out there to ask that you're unusually well-qualified and you've got an interesting point of view on it. And because I don't know you as well as you know you, I haven't really asked that. What should I have asked you that so far I haven't? That's a good question. I think that I am really good at um, thinking about, uh, thinking about like taking a process that may be going on in a given office. Let's say that... Um, well, I'll use an example. I worked for a company that made magazines. Yep. And um, like there was more nuance and, you know, context around that. But at the end of the day, they made magazines. And yep. um, they had these massive printers that um, – and they had – there's like an entire process to creating a magazine. It's not just printing. Um, you got to – there's like a binding process and then there's maybe, you know, uh, sheeting and, you know, this and that. So I think I'm very good at taking a process like that looking at it, being like there with it, being able to see it, being able to watch people in their workflows, and then being able to architect that workflow out into, call it a state machine, call it um, just like a workflow automation, whatever you want to call it, but being able to take human processes and um, turn them into code. I think I, I think I am good at doing that. That is fantastically useful as a skill. So let me ask you that. Because that's that, that's a great thing. That says a lot about uh, about what you're good at, and that is is an extremely relevant skill to what we do. Certainly, let's see. If I was going to try and turn that into a question for you, to uh, to elucidate for our listeners, I might ask, how would you practice that skill? I would practice that skill by going. I mean, you don't even have to leave your your seat, your house, your um, city, your building, whatever, but. You know, I think the best way to do it is to kind of like venture out a little bit and wherever you fight, feel this, um, wherever you want to. But going, finding places, um, maybe just sitting in a coffee shop, for instance, and just watching what the employees are doing and thinking about the ways, like, not from an arrogant way of like, oh, they could be doing this better, they could be doing this better, they could be doing this better. But like, if I had to write a program to automate, certain aspects of what they're doing like i would take it from a very small level first like don't just try to like create like the mcdonald's um kiosk um instead to replace the workers think about something yeah. very very small no Mac like, mcdonald's is fantastically complicated i don't know if you've ever seen any of their binders of, of procedure but mcdonald's is I, very I, aware 
that all of those procedures are in fact the core and the heart of what they do. And if you if you ever you know talk to somebody who's managed a McDonald's, like no, they know in fact that a a very similar to a software piece of procedure is is the the center of their business. I so yes, when you that. say not not something so complicated you could replace workers with it. No, understanding what the McDonald's workers do, there's a lot to that. Absolutely. Sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. I was just from yeah not don't replace like don't don't take it from a so high level of like I'm going to solve every single problem but think about like just focus on one problem that you think that you may be able to solve um for instance like every time um every time a worker adds an order they then have to do this process and then this process is handed off to this person and then this person like creates the coffee and then they uh take it and they they serve it up and they call out the person's name and then just find issues where like there could be issues in that problem. Like one thing yeah. is maybe they get the person's name wrong mm -hmm. or um, sometimes like the coffee backs up because they're trying to help customers and the coffee machine isn't like being, um, you know, there's not new cups being added to fulfill those orders. Find little problems like that, analyze them and think about them from like an algorithmic standpoint. I, 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 learned a lot about algorithms i don't use it a lot but one thing i did take a lot out of it is the kind of the way you think about an algorithm of like i go from step a to step b to step c and if the step c is different so it's kind of not like an algorithm it's more like a uh, a flow chart almost or a flow diagram but thinking about how to model that or how to like diagram that out for something in the real world that you can watch and then think about how you would create that with code how would you improve uh, the process at your local coffee shop if you could write software um, it may be as simple as um, the the customer writes their own name or the customer has a number instead of putting their name down on their coffee cup and just think about little ways like that to improve things and then you can slowly kind of ease up and ease up so going back to where I was working at the printing company uh, every time we wanted to uh, print a file the operator would have to take the file and drag it onto the machine, which was connected to a server um, and like a local server. And then they would have to go over to the machine and queue up that job to print and then print the machine. And once it was all done, they would take it to the next step. So one of the pieces of work that I did was instead of you're dragging and dropping files, which were the files were ultimately coming out of a web app. Yeah. So instead of that we I created an, another web app to, um, um, it receives the files and then it knows all the, where all the files are and it's in control of them and you know what pieces are where and then instead of dragging and dropping a literal file onto a machine into that local server you can instead in the web app because the web app knows where all the files are and it's managing them and it's um, ordering them and it can provide statistics on them um, you tell that the, the machine to or you tell the web app to put the file on the server and then you can slowly expand from that into like okay instead of like using local files why don't we keep these all in the cloud in aws where they're kind of like created from originally and then move them like how do we move that to there and then how do we take this process of like well we need to know um, where orders are or where these um where these shipments are in place and thinking about, okay, well then we need to track them and then we need to build our own tracking system. How do we build this tracking system that doesn't really, or doesn't severely impact um, in a negative way, the lives of the people who are going to be using it? Because I think that's the one thing that um, I struggle with at first is like take, not being, not empathizing with the person who is using the software of like, they don't want their entire routine destroyed. 
how do you integrate software that improves their lives but doesn't disrupt it in a way that um, they're going to have resistance to, is what I would say. Do you, uh, do, do you know the idea of Chesterton's fence? You know that phrase? No, I do not. There was a, a poet a uh, hundred years and more ago, uh, G.K. Chesterton, and um, he said something like, um, if there was a, a fence somewhere and I had no idea why it was there and somebody turned to me and said, clearly there's no reason for that fence, let's tear it down, I would absolutely not let them do it. If a man can tell me why that fence is there, then we can talk about whether to turn it to, to whether to, to tear it down. The idea with Chesterton's fence is that, uh, as a rule, you don't know why a given thing is there, which does not mean there is no reason why it's there. Um, and so, if I was going to, you know, sort of boil down what you just said about process, which is is very perceptive stuff. Um, you need to concentrate on observing the process. You need to concentrate on seeing what you're actually seeing. Um, it is easy to think about correcting the process and wind up correcting it to, to the point where it's completely useless to the people who are doing it. And just deciding that, oh yes, these steps that look inefficient are clearly useless. Some of them are, and some of them aren't. And chances are good they've tried a lot of obvious stuff. And, and it's, it's easy to, you know, to get yourself into trouble and design something that's changed so much that it's useless. As, as you say, not least by just changing the process so much that they can't easily switch to the new one. Um, but yeah, the observation is a really important step. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a great way of kind of summarizing that. Yeah, learn how to observe how people um, use pro or use processes or use software, and then try to increment from there instead of trying to radicalize an entire new solution. Solid. So pretend for a moment that this podcast, you know, this this specific episode with you, gets massively popular. Everybody hears you. Everybody thinks it's awesome. They think, Andrew Mason, Andrew M. Codes, this guy, I want to hear more of what he has to say. Uh, if this was a Twitter thread, it would be going viral and you would be posting your SoundCloud. What's your SoundCloud? Where's the next place you'd like people to go? Uh, I would encourage people to, um, you can check out my Twitter, but I would like to push people to listen to Remote Ruby um, if they are interested in podcasts um, where Chris Oliver and Jason Charns and I have interesting people on sometimes. And sometimes we just talk about interesting problems that we're working on. Um, uh, I would like to plug that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew M. Codes. Uh, my website is andrewm.codes, although it needs a little bit of maintenance that I've been neglecting recently. Always. Um, yeah, always. I uh, I blog on that website, but also I cross-post on dev.2. Um, and you can find me pretty much anywhere at Andrew M. Codes. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. I, by, by the time this episode comes out, uh, the episode with Chris Oliver will also have come out. I haven't done one with Jason Charns yet, though I probably should. He's a great guy to talk to. Yeah, I, Jason is awesome. Awesome community member. He really is. Excellent. Uh, well, this has been computer science, just the useful bits, and I have been Noah Gibbs again. Um, it's been great talking to Andrew Mason, and um, yeah, hope to uh, hope to continue speaking to all you wonderful people out there, and I hope you found something useful in this episode.